Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta's professional women's basketball team, the Atlanta Dream, had a great run last year, all the way to the WNBA Finals. Atlanta with a chance to win it. Down by one. Here's Montgomery. Five seconds. Four. Angel for the win! Go! Head coach Nikki Collin has been leading the dream since fall of 2017. The team is now gearing up for the upcoming season, beginning this Friday. I spoke with Nikki earlier this year and asked her about the challenge of leading a pro sports team with the ball in the woman's court, and she does it all in heels. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. It's great to be here. To make it big in basketball, people do tend to start quite young, but you had your sights on playing tennis, I understand, when you were younger. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, started playing tennis in about second grade and just, I don't know, somehow identified with that whole Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova um, competition and just wanted to be the next Chris Everett and happened to live in a neighborhood that bordered a country club so could get on my bike and ride my bike over to the courts. And so, yeah, I mean, by that dream kind of fell apart in the fourth grade when we moved to Wisconsin and there was like one small, <laughs> no tennis you courts. know, <laughs> tennis court in the, the whole town. So that that's kind of when basketball started to take off for me. So when did, how did you start with basketball? Was it the pickup games in the park or was it at school? Yeah, no, it was actually neither. I I, uh, I had played maybe YWCA, but I wasn't very good in about second, third grade, uh, just as something that you did with other kids. But uh, when we moved to Wisconsin, you know, we had a big cement driveway with a basketball hoop in our driveway. And so it just kind of was one of those things. You're the new kid in a, a small town and, you know, got a ball. And my dad, you know, started making me work out there. And it was, it was kind of right there. So I played... Um, I can still point to, you know, everybody has a, you talk about those aha moments, you know, and, and I was watching actually my fifth grade daughter in the driveway dribble between her legs the other day. And it, it took me back to that moment because I realized that, you know, fifth grade, I played in a girls, boys, like rec league and in a game where uh, it was two undefeated teams and I wasn't one of the best players, but I'd gotten to the point where I was solid, but I hit the game-winning shot. And I can actually point to that moment and say, I think that's when I fell in love with basketball, and it became kind of a part of my DNA from, from then on. So after that aha moment, when did you think, I really do have a future in basketball? You know, I just, I think I came out of the womb pretty competitive. Um, so no matter what I did, I wanted to be the best. Um, I always struggled with losing. It didn't matter what it was. And so I, I think it was then that, you know, I just got a taste of success with it. And so that kind of created this, I think, desire in me. I just knew I wanted to be a really good basketball player. I, so it, it kind of started with that. It started with the driveway, but, you know, started going um, after school each day with my dad to the gym and getting shots up and, and thinking about where that would lead me. And, and I never really thought past college. I mean, the pro leagues didn't exist when I was in mm -hmm. middle school. So, you know, it was really about, you know, can I get a college scholarship to Stanford? But I didn't even know what that meant then. It was just about playing at the highest level. It was about watching those players on TV at that time when you were just starting to see women's basketball on TV at a high level and think, someday that might be me. 
Let's go back to that boy-girl rec league. I, I saw a poll that the number one career field that little boys dream of when they're growing up is professional sports. For girls, sports don't even make the list, although I will say doctor was number one choice, which I think some progress has been made. But has the door to professional sports for female athletes been closed for so long that they don't even consider it? Well, I think, you know, when I was that age, what I the only thing I thought I knew about my life was that I was going to be famous. I didn't know how. I just, I think I genuinely thought somehow, some way I'm going to be famous. I remember moving in the fourth grade and, and uh, my class doing a party for me and, uh, you know, them writing this little play about my life. And, you know, they had predicted that I would be the first female president. Whoa. And so there's no doubt that even at that age that I kind of had that sense of, Somehow I'm going to make it big. I don't quite know how, um, but absolutely. I think that was part of the Chris Everett attraction. Like I was seeing her on TV. I could see it. I could, I couldn't exactly touch it, um, but I saw that it was real. And so I think what we've got now is with professional sports and women being in professional sports, there's now a path. Uh, young girls can see it, can't even touch it now getting to the games and, and can see that it's a possibility. So you were part of that. This is Title IX, happened in 1972. Uh, women's athletics, it was passed. It mandated equal treatment of the sexes in sports. How did that change the game for women's professional sports? I think it's, it's just opportunity. It gave opportunity. And I think the confusing part sometimes for people about Title IX is what it really means. And it doesn't mean that um, it, it's not always apples to apples, it's not always because this person gets this amount of money that this person get, should get this amount of money as well. But it, it gave opportunity. You know, when I talked to my mom, who I think some of my athleticism I got from my mom, but she grew up in a small town in Michigan and cheerleading and band were, you know, her only options. And so, you know, I it, it's hard to say because it's not like I think my mom throws a ball um, like John Smoltz or anything, but... Uh, she just didn't have any of those opportunities. And it, it kind of makes me sad to think about because I will say even growing up in an environment where I typically played boys sports until I was in high school or played with boys. I played Little League Baseball all the way through the eighth grade, was the only girl in the league. No one ever told me I couldn't do something or I wasn't allowed to do it. So, you know, I definitely I think I'm a Title IX baby in terms of not really understanding what it was like uh, before that opportunity existed. Were there other girls playing at that time or was it just you? I was the only girl in, in Little League Baseball. Mm. Um, you know, my town had slow pitch softball and I did not consider that an option. I'm speaking with the Atlanta Dream head coach, Nikki Collin. It's her second season with the team. We're reeling back and learning a little bit about her life, a really directed life from the sounds of it. And before you came to the WNBA, you spent nine seasons. This was coaching on the collegiate level. So learning the ropes, I guess. Did you ever think that coaching would be your career goal? Uh, certainly not when I was in college. I, I was very, um, you know, I was naturally athletic, had good hand-eye coordination, but I think the reason I was good because of my work ethic. Um, and, you know, I, I can point back to when I was a collegiate player and having teammates that were naturally 6'2", 6'3", ran like deer, you know, just, and I remember thinking if they worked half as hard as I work, they're, you know, they could write their path in basketball. Um, but, you know, I had something in my gut, something in my belly. And, but I, I really thought coaching would be a tough path for me because, you know, 
I wasn't sure I could coach people that didn't want it as bad as I want it, who didn't, you know, didn't want to be good um, at the level that I thought they were capable of. And so I, I just wasn't sure I could understand that. Um, but then when I, after I played professionally for a year and, and it was real world time, um, you know, and I had to make a decision about what to do with my life. And I actually took a job in engineering, but hadn't started it yet when I got the opportunity to take a coaching job. And the more I thought about it, the more I just realized like basketball wasn't out of my system at that time, you know, that I had to pursue it. I had to see if it was something that I was capable of being good at. Um, you know, and over time here I am. What did you want in a coach as a player? Accountability, uh, someone that could truly communicate with me. Um, I'm very much a living in the gray area person. I, I struggle probably the most to coach players who are black and white. I don't think the world uh, revolves that way. I don't think sports revolve that way. Um, but some people need more direction. So, you know, guidance, trust, loyalty, uh, you know, someone that believed in me. You know, I, I made a change. I, I went to Purdue, uh, transferred to Marquette, um, had great success as a team at Purdue, a Final Four, an Elite Eight, had great teammates, but just wanted to be more impactful on the floor, wanted those minutes, wanted someone to believe I was the person to lead our team, especially from the point guard position. And so, you know, the move was about that, about that opportunity to show that I was capable of showcasing a lot more than I was ever able to do. You went and played in Greece at the in the professional league there. Why Greece? Well, I... You know, when I got out of college, I tried out for the Detroit Shock, um, which moved then to Tulsa, which is now Dallas, but um, and really wanted to play in the WNBA. You know, it had started. I thought it was a real possibility for me, uh, was cut in kind of the last round of cuts in Detroit and thought, I need to go give this this professional thing a shot. You know, I'd had a number of teammates and friends that were playing overseas and you know, their reasons were different than mine. I wanted to go overseas because I wanted another shot at playing in the United States. They went overseas to see the world, mm. you know, and, and to do it playing basketball and have someone pay them, you know. And so for me, it was about talking to my agent about getting me in the best possible league that I could play in with the best possible competition. And while there certainly were other leagues that were better, um, you know, beggars can't be choosers kind of thing. And so, you know, it was a good league. It wasn't a great team. Um, but, you know, ironically that year, there were two professional leagues, the ABL and the WNBA. The ABL folded while I was over in Greece. And I kind of knew at that point that there weren't going to be a lot of spots for a 5-5 point guard in a league that had eight teams to start, you know, and you had a league, the ABL, that was a more traditional league because it was a winter league. It paid higher salaries. You had a lot of really, really talented players that were going to be moving into the WNBA at that point. So then coming back to that completely new universe of what was going on in women's professional basketball in the U.S. Was it a come down for you to think of coaching rather than being a player? In some ways, ironically, it still is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always say that, you know, I watch Vince Carter, um, who's only two years younger than me, you know, running up and down the court for the Hawks now. And I sometimes I think, wow, if I could still be doing that. Like there's just some joy, some something about the competitiveness of playing and the joy of playing that's different when you're in coaching. At the same time, I think I've learned to truly embrace it. I know it's something that I'm confident about. I, I know it's something that um, I think I knew from an early, from early on in coaching 
that I was a good communicator, that I found ways to communicate with different types of players. And so, you know, I, I don't know that it's a it's a come down as much as it's just a it's just a different avenue to to be a part of a sport that you just love and feel like you like my whole life is defined by that moment I hit that game winning shot because where basketball has taken me from around the world um, in coaching and playing, um, you know, I met my husband through coaching. I have three kids. You know, basketball has kind of been that thing that has driven the path of my entire life. But as a coach, when you're uh, you're wearing a lot of hats, you have to be, you know, part mentor, part team mom, I'm guessing, therapist, a leader. What are these off the court roles like? Well, I think it's a little less in the pros than it is in college. I think a, a huge part of coaching in college is that mentor relationship. I, I think when you're in the pros, you suddenly now have you're, you're working with adults, you know, players that are getting paychecks, that are going home and doing their own thing and, and have interests outside. They're not just going to class in college. But I will tell you, I think I became a better coach when I had kids hmm. because I started to understand coaching from a different perspective and communication from a different perspective and happiness and, you know, a lot of little things that way and communicating with parents of recruits and and so, you know, it's important to me. And I think most of the players know that I'm, I'm very relationship-based. I'm not outcome-based. Um, while I won't keep a job very long if the outcome isn't consistently good, and I understand that, that I think part of why we were able to turn it as quickly as, as we were here in Atlanta is that, you know, we, we built a good culture. And, you know, our players like playing together. They knew I had their back, um, that I genuinely care about them off the court. And quite frankly, I'm just one of those people that's not afraid to hug them. Um, I tell them I love them on a daily basis. I just, you know, I kind of don't let those things slip through the gaps. I'm speaking with the Atlanta Dream head coach, Nikki Collin. This is her second season with the team, and we're going to hear more about her transition to the WNBA and her leadership role with the Atlanta Dream team. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Atlanta Dream was founded in 2008 and has reached the WNBA Finals three times since. The Dream's head coach, Nikki Collin, is my guest. We're talking about how she experienced her time as a player and then coached at the college level and then ended up coaching in the WNBA. There are particular challenges for women's sports. The New York Times reports that the WNBA received just below 200,000 viewers on ESPN. And then average pay. Several athletes have been vocal about inequality, about issues over the past few decades. Uh, average pay now about $79,000 a year. Players who are lower on the totem ball m might even have a hard time making ends meet. So for you, is it hard to get your players to practice hours and hours a day when paid comparatively less than, let's say, male athletes? I truly understand both sides of the equation here. I understand that our players, um, you know, don't get paid a comparable salary to what people would think with the NBA at the same time. You know, we don't have a lot of franchises that turn a profit. And so, you know, you certainly have money coming in through um, TV deals with ESPN. Um, 
but there's just not a bunch of money sitting around, you know, that's not being paid out. Our owners are not getting rich, you know, off of owning these professional teams. I will say that, you know, when you look at our league, you, you talk about the NBA and they, they have a soft cap at about a hundred million where we have a hard cap at about 1 million. So you look at, you know, we, we basically pay our players 1% of what an average NBA roster looks like. Now, there are so many factors in that. There are TV contracts. There are dollars, you know. I mean, when I think about how our league needs to grow, we need sponsorships. We need businesses who believe in what we do because that's where the money is. Um, you know, the it's not always in the marketing and, and recognition, although I think, you know, continuing to market our players at a high level is important. But I think it's getting businesses to believe in what we do and want to support it. And so, you know, they're just our two sides of the coin. Now, do I think I have a hard time getting my players to practice hard? I think there are certain days that I do. And I, I'm sure there are certain days that $17 million men's players don't want to practice either. You know, I don't think the players get up on a daily basis and say, I'm not getting paid enough to do this. You know, I just, you know, our players, while I, I, I don't like that they have, have to do this or feel that they have to do this, you know, they go overseas and they make money over there. So, you know, most of them are making, you know, would probably, you know, if you think about the world in general or even the United States, they'd still be in the top probably 1%, you know, when you figure in what they make. Now, when you're a basketball player, you have a finite amount of time to make money. You know, you can't play basketball when you're 60. So, you know, they have to take advantage of the amount of time that they have to play. If we can observe, there are many very talented men who've made it to the NBA, get a huge salary. And the inflation of ego and sense of invulnerability can swell along with that. Do you think that's a downfall of these mega salaries for even super talented players? Well, I think you, you, you certainly, I think it's hard to not understand the power of money. You know, we've seen how, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's professional sports or it's wealthy people in general, um, you know, them fall from grace because they got greedy. And I think that it's, it's no different that, you know, any person needs to stay grounded in their principles and what got them to that point in order to be successful. I, I think that we can look at, at professional sports and, and a lot of these males that are making a lot of money and, and the percentage of them that are bankrupt by 45 because they don't know how to manage it and they don't know how to live with it. Um, and that's in some ways a bigger concern to me than, than their egos, that they're making these huge salaries and they're spending it as if they're going to make it forever um, and truly getting you know, because you're talking about so often, you think about the NBA, most of these players are, are 19. Now they're playing one year of college basketball and then going pro at 19. And they've had handlers their whole life, um, you know, kind of telling them what to do and telling them how good they are. Um, and so it, it, it really isn't the real world. I mean, I, I can tell you being around that you know, when you when you're used to personal chefs and you charter everywhere and, you know, what they do, they, they entertain. They entertain us, right? I mean, these guys are they play sports, but they entertain us and they're amazing at their craft um, and they certainly have all the resources at their disposal. So the question is, when you don't have the resources anymore, are you prepared for life after that, that always to me is a bigger concern to me than, you know, do they get big egos? Because I think in some ways 
part of their ego is what's part part of what makes them good. Mm. You know, it keeps that edge. They think they're good. Um, you know, and, and our sport is very mental. Professional sports in general are mental. And you have to believe that you're the best when you step between the lines. So that's a hard thing to coach, isn't it? You know, somebody who believes that they're the best. How do you negotiate that kind of, that's a psychological dynamic, a power dynamic in many ways. It very much is. And I think it's getting, especially obviously in a team sport, uh, getting each individual to believe that collectively, you know, that, that they're better. I think that, you know, if you want to be considered one of the greatest athletes, you don't want to be one of the greatest athletes that never won a championship, right? You know, I mean, how many how many times did we even talk about Phil Mickelson? You know, how many events he had won before he won his first major? Or, you know, you just have lots of those instances. So it's getting them to understand. It was so very easy um, when I came to town because they, they'd come off a disappointing year where they didn't meet expectations and they knew they were better. Um, so I don't think it was hard for them to buy into giving a little to get a lot, you know, but I think that's a, that's part of it is getting them to understand that they can still be individually successful and get individual accolades, but it's going to be better if the team's better. We mentioned salary is one of the big challenges for the league. What are some of the other ones? I think sometimes it's, you know, obviously um, last year we had some travel issues. You know, we're, we're not a league that that charters or is probably going to get anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at the cost, it's it's, you know, it's just hard to even to move a team from place it, to place. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, sometimes it's, it's the travel. It's the um, it's the shortness of the season. It's the fact that our players play year round because they'll, and so sometimes we have players that show up late to training camp or are late because they're not going to leave their Turkish team before the end of the season. Cause they're making a half a million with their Turkish team and 70 with us. So what, you know, where do we fall, you know, and as much as I think our players put great value on playing the WNBA because they know it's the most competitive league in the world, you know, it, it's almost like, we're the second job sometimes. Hmm. And so I think pay goes into that, you know, that perception that that's how it is. And, and so that, that's a lot. Sometimes it's facilities. Um, you know, it, it can be a big thing. You know, we play in the summer, so we don't have some of the overlap when the league started, all the teams were owned by NBA teams. And so it was a way to use those arenas in the summer. Now we only five of our 12 teams are still owned by NBA teams and the others are individually owned. So, you know, it's negotiating those contracts in facilities and practice facilities and things like that. Getting better pay in Turkey or in Greece or other places why do you think that is? What's your theory on why the game, the women's game, is venerated, supported, paid for differently? As, as you mentioned, the best players are here in the WNBA. When you think about professional basketball overseas, they have a totally different system. So they don't have college systems. They have club systems. And so not unlike people in Georgia grow up in either their alma mater as Georgian, so they continue to support the University of Georgia as their alma mater. But that's their team. Well, overseas, these teams these players play for, these clubs, that's how people are, grow up. In, in Turkey, you grow up and you're a Fenerbahce you know, person you're, you know, and so it's, it's about, there's money coming in and there's individual ownership that, that, you know, for tax reasons, for a lot of different reasons, pay Americans to come over. When you watch a game, it's not as if when you watch a game in Turkey, 
and I watch Euro League games every Wednesday, Euro Cup games Thursday. Like I am watching these games overseas. They're not putting twelve thousand people. These facilities don't even hold that. You know, they might not have more people than we have at our game. But they, they don't have the same cost for facilities, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have. And so to me, it's just more if, if we could compare it, their system is almost aligns more like our college system where you have money coming into these clubs and this built in loyalty and camaraderie. Um, and so it's just it's different. It's just a totally different system. We're digging into the behind the scenes of the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA with Nikki Collins. She's the head coach. It's her second season at the team. Uh, and of course, the part of the system here, part of what makes it work is the stars. Big part stars, part of the formula, makes a professional sports team tick. They help win games. They help sell tickets. And I think little girls need a name to put on the back of the jer- those jerseys they wear for games. For years, the dream and a lot of those jerseys referenced Angel McCautry. So what has her star power meant for the dream? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the the absolute turnaround from their first year uh, when they just had a part of the supplemental draft to, you know, when Angel came on board, the quick turnaround. You know, clearly she was a player that made a difference on the basketball court. Um, I think she adopted Atlanta. She's from Baltimore. I actually helped recruit her to Louisville, and my husband was the head coach there uh, when she was Big East Player of the Year. So there was already, for me coaching her, there was there was a background story um, coming in. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, she is genuine. She loves to play basketball. She had star power because she was so athletic, but she also oftentimes played her best basketball in the biggest moments. Her her playoff average is still the highest in WNBA history, even though the dream, you know, were swept into uh, WNBA finals, getting to the finals, being Eastern Conference champions. Um, so, you know, I think she turned turn this place around in terms of success um, and still would like to see, you know, to be able to hold a trophy up ultimately. We are living in the post Me Too and Time's Up movement time. And the voice for women, the ignored voices are being heard in a different way. There are many high profile athletes who have spoken out about this. I'm thinking of tennis star Serena Williams called out sexism and racism in professional tennis. People on your team, behind the Black Lives Matter movement. No compunction about that. But do you think the voice against sexism is as strong? It's funny because I think about, you know, my kids. My kids are 13, 13, and 11. And I don't think my girls think there is a thing that they can't do uh, in this world, you know? And they just, they have no blinders on, or maybe they have total blinders on when it comes to homosexuality or so many of these issues that, you know, for an older generation were issues. Like, you know, when I look at my 13 year old and my 11 year old, they just don't see the world that way. They don't, they wonder if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and there's just no judgment, right? Like it's, it's, it's really cool. And so I think that so much of this sexism stems from a place that is, is truly the minority and not the majority anymore. But with with social media, with the world we live in, they can make their voices loud, you know, because there's a platform for everyone to be an expert on anything. Um, And maybe sometimes we listen too much. Um, But, you know, I, I think that's at the root of some of this, you know, this whole 
you know, I could beat you in a one-on-one game. You know, our, our, our players, we don't pretend to think that we could take our best player in the WNBA and that they would be an NBA all-star. Like, our players are smart enough to know that that's not who they are. Like we, we as females, we're not created equal to men. We were created differently and wonderfully and, you know, but, and, and we're incredibly athletic and our players are incredibly athletic, but they're not NBA players. They're not 5'11 versions of the 6'7 NBA player. And so, you know, so much of the pushback and the sexism from our side is from people who just are never going to appreciate what we do. Would it be a dream of yours that you never get asked questions like that again? <laughs> you know, that that it doesn't become, this is a woman's game compared to the men's game. You know, that it isn't always the otherizing, I guess. Of- Absolutely. I, th- I think when there, when there isn't a reference point that you like us because you, I mean, w- for some reason in tennis, Serena Williams served you know, speed is not compared to Nadal's. Like it just, now, what do they think? This woman is incredibly powerful and wow. I mean, but you know, it's not compared as much. So, you know, absolutely. I'd love to think that our league, our game um, could stand on its own because I think it's, it's an incredible game. You know, I mean, if you love basketball, I think you'd love the WNBA. I know it's a business. You got to make money. You got to pay people. You got to take care of them. But your dream for the dream on the court and in the stands and in the community. So many things. Um, Part of moving here, most WNBA coaches don't actually live where they work. Um, and so moving to market has, has really brought me closer to the core of what you're talking about. It's, it's who is the dream? Who do we want to be? Um, you know, I want to be connected in this community. I absolutely love what I do. I know that ultimately if we're successful that I can probably get a higher paying job in college, but I love coaching pros. Um, and so for me, the dream, I mean, we want to bring a championship to Atlanta. There's no doubt that is a, both a, a franchise goal and quite frankly, a personal goal to be able to, you know, hold a championship trophy up and have a parade and, you know, all those things. So I think on the basketball side, it's that. But I also think that, you know, when I took this job, one of the things I told our fans is that win or lose, I want them to be proud of our effort and I want them to be proud of how we act when we play. And so continuing to understand that, you know, we're going to be good citizens and we're going to be role models and, and we're going to care about this community. And so, you know, I, I want to matter in Atlanta. I say there's 6 million people. And, you know, when we were at Georgia Tech and, and there were 8,000 people, it's like surely there's 8,000 people in this 6 million, you know, people city that that can care about women's basketball on any given night. And so, you know, I, I want to see... I want to see people support this team um, because I think these players deserve it. Nikki Collin, really, really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That is Atlanta Dream head coach Nikki Collins sharing her reflections as the team's leader. Their season starts this Friday, and you can get details on tickets at our website, gpbnews.org. Coming up, Georgia's high school graduation rate continues to increase. On Second Thought gets a lesson on innovative new models for mentorship. Stay with us for more on Second Thought.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.